If you would, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want to say a brief thank you to those who ask how the foot is. I assume it's still attached under this boot. And, uh, but my, my recovery is going as it should. Any pain that I feel is pain I should be feeling. Uh, the bigger deal is actually not walking, it's sitting like this for any amount of time uh, because, you know, all things, gravity pulls all things downward. So uh, I'm doing well. So thank you for all those who, who have asked. Uh, before we actually read the scripture, I want to do something I had planned on doing in our members' meeting had we met on uh, that Sunday evening. Uh, I want to share some things with you because every October, you know, the, the anniversary of my coming here uh, rolls around, and it's always a good time for reflection, and uh, I thought I would share with you some of the evidences of God's grace, only some of them, uh, that I've just seen and I think we ought to actually celebrate together over the last 12 years. This is in addition to uh, the fact that God has, I mean, this is the biggest thing, is that God has saved men and women through His Word and through the gospel in the last 12 years. Some, God has saved some of our children in the last 12 years and seeing them grow in the faith, and uh, that is glorious. And in addition to that, uh, I think of things like the fact that God has expanded our care for the orphan as a congregation as several families have become involved in foster care and have adopted. And for those who haven't done it directly, so many families have come around those who have been involved in foster care and have adopted in various ways. And what a blessing it is to see that. And uh, to now, uh, we're becoming more involved in Isaiah 117, this ministry to children who are in some of the hardest days of their childhood being taken from their home and moving into foster care. Um, God has grown our commitment to Scripture. I, I've seen this happen one, in one particular place is in our children's ministry. Through the years, we transitioned from where we were. There's no sense in, uh, it's not like the curriculum we were using was bad, but we are Moving, we are now in a place where every three years our preschool and elementary kids go all the way through the storyline of the Bible and that they are sent home with devotionals to help them and for families to help them as well. Um, we transition just as a church over time to align how we operate both in our understanding of church membership, taking in and out members. Uh, and how we uh, are governed under a plurality of elders. That transition has happened over the last 12 years. And can I tell you how many church splits we went through in 12 years over that? Zero. I'd say that because I have good friends who have just sought to teach the Bible on those things. And they've been exiled to the Isle of Patmos for it. Just for teaching the Bible. We've had more than half of our church members go through biblical counseling training of some kind. Six in the last 12 years have become certified biblical counselors. Which is significant because 
those people have made impacts on other people by helping them see their lives and their problems through the lens of Scripture and helping them walk faithfully through those times. So all of that under Scripture. We've grown as a singing congregation. I think I picked a good Sunday morning to actually mention that because my oh my, the choir sounded great today. Because I don't think it's just about decibel level when it comes to a singing congregation. I think it's about God's grace giving us sincere hearts that want to praise Him, that want to sing. God has grown us in hospitality, not only being welcoming here within our congregation, but opening up the doors of our homes to others. Some of you had never had other people in the church into your home until a few years ago when we started talking about 1 Peter 4, 9. And praise the Lord for that because you have friendships now that are different than they would have been if you hadn't. God used us greatly in the lives of the men from the Hebron ministry who were fighting for their lives against life-dominating sins. And we've seen fruit from that. And not all of that fruit is seen here, but some of it is. It's glorious. It's wonderful. God has deepened our passion for reaching the unreached to not be okay with things just with other people taking care of reaching to the unreached areas of the world. And that passion, that passion was especially sparked in this last missions conference. As we remember, hopefully some of us were reminded, but some of us learned for the first time that the unreached peoples of the world are coming to the United States of America in many ways. But not only that, I'm very excited to say that earlier this week I had a call with Harry Gebert and uh, in the coming months, uh, Lord willing, we'll be looking at some new partnerships in places that where, you know, it's less than 1% of the population are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, ex- that's an exciting possibility for us. Now, I could go on and on. But these are the things that just came to my mind in about three minutes worth of sitting down and jotting them down. But the stories of God's grace over the last 12 years are such a blessing to me. And I hope that they're a blessing to you. And I pray that God multiplies these things in the years to come. Multiplies them. In fact, we should just praise God for that now, shouldn't we? Let's Let's just sing the doxology together to praise God for what He has done in our midst. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Amen. Amen. Think on that. And when you think of something that by God's grace has happened in the last 12 years, send me an email. I would love to just praise the Lord with you. Something maybe the Lord has done in your life that's on a smaller scale in the last 12 years. Or maybe something you've seen in the church. Well, let's get to the Bible, shall we? Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 2 to 12, and then we'll pray. 
This is what the Spirit says. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, now we ask you to speak through your word and give us ears to hear, hearts to receive and believe and love what you say, and the will to obey. For Christ's sake, amen. Now, some of you, if you're like me, you're incredibly distractible in this flickering light right above my head. You've been counting the number of times. Maybe you've been trying to time how much time is in between one flicker and the next. Well, let me just say that the men who are on our building and grounds team, they see the flickering light, and it'll be handled in due time. But uh, So I I say that up front because I don't want the, the rush of people... Uh, who seem very intent to speak after the service to say, did you know that there was a flickering light right above your head? Why, yes. Yes, I did. I see it. I'm not, I'm not counting the number of times uh, that it flickers, all right? So, anyway, today we come to the end of the Beatitudes. We will continue on with our study of the Sermon on the Mount next week. Um, But as I've said multiple times, these Beatitudes are meant to be taken together. Each one is a brushstroke, if you like, and together they give us a master portrait of the blessed life, of a life to be celebrated, of a life that is flourishing, of the Christian life. Now, I want you to imagine that you go to Newfields, you know, the art museum here in India. People approach going through an art museum differently. Some people uh, think it is the mall before it opens, and they speed walk through it, right? They go as quickly as they can, usually because somebody else has made them go to the art museum when they'd actually rather go somewhere else. And they say, oh, did you see this painting? I think so. It was a blur, but I, I did see it as I walked past. But other people are more intentional, aren't they? They stop. They look. They look at the brush strokes. They look at the expressions on faces. They look at the composition, they look at the color, they look at the value. I don't even know some of these words that I'm saying, but my wife teaches art, and so I've heard them around. But they look at all these things, and they look very intently. And when it comes to the Beatitudes, they are short sayings, and and there's a temptation to be like that first person in the art museum and just kind of speed walk through them. But we really... But our approach has been to take time and to walk with intent through this particular set of Beatitudes. 
to look at each of these brush strokes carefully, to think about them and their uh, impact on us. And as we have, what we've seen, I don't know that I've said it this way up to now, but what we've seen is that these Beatitudes speak to our relationship to God, our relationship to others, and our relationship to an unbelieving world. So in relationship to God, Christians are the ones who know that they are poor in spirit. They mourn over they, their sin. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They, uh, they seek to be pure in heart. In relationship to others, Christians are meek and merciful. In relationship to the world, the unbelieving world, Christians are to be peacemakers, not simply seeking to live at peace with others, though we should do that in as much as we can. But we share the gospel, a gospel that brings peace between God and man. And only then, actually, can we pursue peace on a horizontal plane. But this last one also deals with our relationship with an unbelieving world. You see, we're peacemakers when our sharing of the gospel leads to making peace. That's what we're seeking to do. But you know, many people don't want to listen They don't want to hear. They want to plug their ears as the religious leaders did when Stephen was speaking. They want to stomp on the floor like a three-year-old and say, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And that's the kind of thing that leads to what we see in these last three verses. Another surprising statement by Jesus, isn't it? The one who is blessed in God's eyes is cursed by the world. The one who seeks to please God is persecuted by the world. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. So I want us to notice three things about this. The first is the reality of persecution. Then we'll look at the reason for persecution. And then we'll see the reward for persecution. No, we won't. We'll see the response. The reward is in the response, but we'll see the response to persecution, all right? So, the reality, the reason, and the response. First, the reality of persecution. Now, typically, when we think of persecution, our thinking is fairly limited, isn't it? Uh, It's limited to something like, oh, persecution, that's something for missionaries, isn't it? We think of Jim Elliott in Ecuador trying to reach the Hwarani Indians, and and we think of how he 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 was killed there for that. Uh, and it's a tremendously uh, encouraging and uh, uh, inspiring story. It's, it's in a book called Through Gates of Splendor. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to. I'm pretty sure we have some in uh, the cafe. But it's limited to missionaries. Or it's just limited to other countries. It's limited to, you know, the stories we read in um, something like The Voice of the Martyrs magazine. So just in this most recent issue, there was a story about an Ethiopian man named Jamal. And Jamal had, it tells how he came to faith in Christ. And when his family learned that he had become a Christian, uh, the derogatory word used by his father was, are you a penti? A penti, that's the derogatory word for Christian. And uh, Jamal says yes. And his father basically wants to kill him. But he doesn't want to be arrested for it. So he has Jamal's brothers and some other men from the village beat him to try to get him to agree to come back to Islam. And when Jamal won't do that, 
they take all of Jamal's belongings and they burn them. And they send him away, and his father's last words to him were this, If I see you, I will burn you alive. Now, to many, that is the sum total of what persecution is. It's limited to special people, and it's limited to far-off places, and it's limited even to life-threatening situations. But we'll see that not all of that is true. But when it comes to the idea of being limited, Jesus doesn't limit this beatitude or any of them to a special class of people, does he? Being poor in spirit, being meek, Uh, being pure in heart. These aren't for certain types of Christians. He he doesn't say that that only some people will do this. You know, the, the higher level Christians will get into these things. No, no, no. That's not the case. It's also not the case that Christians won't exhibit only some of the Beatitudes. That there are only some of them. That Basically, the Christian life, when it comes to the Beatitudes, is like a buffet. You have a plate, and you put on your plate what you'd like to, what you'd like to have there. Well, uh, I don't particularly like more, more... Well, now, that was not expected right there. <laughs> I would like to see my notes, so I'd rather have the flickering light than have these lights off. Um, this is even more distracting, although it's probably better to look at me in the dark than it is to look at me in the light. Uh, so, so here's the thing. What was I talking about? <laughs> this reminds me of the first year I was here. Within six months of being here, I'm sitting up here talking, and the gentleman who was up uh, at the light board who's sitting where you are, Nick, uh, I'm saying something, and the lights slowly begin to fade in the entire auditorium, and they just eventually fade all the way to being out. And I just, it was like, like something in the Old Testament. I mean, it was, you know, and darkness fell upon the face of gray road. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to look down at my notes, and we're going to get right back on track. All right, there's some people look at the Beatitudes like a buffet, like they're going to have a plate, and they're going to walk through, and they're going to decide what they can, you know, what is palatable to them, and they're going to put those on the plate. And when they think their plate is full, well, then that's it. Well, the problem is, is that we're not holding the plate. Jesus is. And he puts it all on the plate and says, this is the Christian life. Not what we pick and choose. All the Beatitudes for all Christians. Now, it's convicting to think about that, isn't it? Because as we look at our lives and we think about these Beatitudes, we, we may see evidence of some of them, but we also see others that are quite shriveled in our lives. We shouldn't dismiss that. We, we need to deal with that. We need to go to the Lord and, and see and ask Him to help us to see where we need to grow. The difference with this last one, though, is that it's not something you set out to grow in. It's not something you set out to pursue. It's something that comes to you because of all the other Beatitudes. It is something that we don't initiate. It is something that we experience. If you will, if you like your English grammar, we don't. Persecution is not active tense. You know, we're not the active voice here. 
We're passive. We don't do it. We receive it. It is ha- something that happens to us. I mean, Paul says as much. Paul says this is what the Christian life is when he speaks to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some, all. And the thing is, all Christians should desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Thus, all Christians who seek to live a godly life, who seek to live out the Beatitudes, if you will, will be persecuted. This is the reality for every Christian. And then notice what happens in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you. Something happens here. Maybe you noticed it. All the times that we've read these uh, Beatitudes together, maybe you noticed what's happening here. There's a change in the way Jesus speaks. Up to this point, he's been speaking in the third person, right? Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are even persecuted. But then the change comes. He finishes by saying, blessed are you. Now, when things change like that in the, middle, in the middle of something that's ongoing, you should pay attention to that. Pay attention when it becomes the second person like that. Because this is important. Now, why is it important? Well, I think it's important because Jesus wants his disciples to pay attention. This is not just some message that, he's, that the disciples are meant to carry out to other people. This is for them. Blessed are you. When others revile you. And also, blessed are you when others revile you. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be kind of ongoing all day, every day, 24 hours a day for the rest of your life. What it means is, blessed are you whenever it happens. And it will happen. When you are reviled. It's not a possibility. It's a promise. Persecution will come. We'll see in just a little bit. Jesus promises it in other places. But it comes in different forms, doesn't it? Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. So there's slander, harsh criticism, uh, uh, mockery, insults. I mean, we face these kinds of things today. How can you believe in such an ancient book? How can you hold such old-fashioned standards? I mean, get with the times. Things have changed. Morality has changed. Humanity has changed. Sexuality has changed. Our understanding of gender has changed. Everything has changed. Get with the times. It's so archaic of you. And then based on that, the slander comes. Because we actually do believe this ancient book. Because we do actually hold these old-fashioned standards. Not old-fashioned like 50 years ago. Old-fashioned like millennia ago. Old-fashioned like before the dawn of time, they were in the mind of God ago. And Jesus says we're blessed if that happens. In fact, Peter it must have sunk deep into Peter that, he, that Jesus said this because later when he's writing to people under persecution, he says, 
the exact same thing. He says in 1 Peter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And so in addition to the reviling, to the slander, there's persecution. Now, this actually refers to a more formal and organized opposition. It includes legal accusations. It includes physical pain. Jesus talks about it when he sends the disciples out later in the book of Matthew to do gospel ministry. He says, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. When was the last time you were at a a service where a man was being ordained for ministry and that was the text from the Bible that was preached? We're going to lay hands on you and then they're going to lay hands on you. We love you, but the world will hate you. And they will organize against you. We just heard recently from our partners in Quebec, the the, the Billingtons, that sports arenas seem to be quite open while churches are still ordered to remain closed. And then Jesus says, they will utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They will lie. You see, if the truth about your faith doesn't draw enough opposition, folks will just make things up about you that aren't actually true. They'll say you're full of hate for other people. They'll say you're unloving. Let's say you're bigoted just for believing God's word. You see, not all persecution sends you to the ER or ends your life, but it's all Christianity 101. And Peter echoes more of Jesus' words in that same text, 1 Peter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though Something strange were happening to you. Persecution isn't strange or out of step with this world. It's the reality of the world in which we live. The second thing is to see the reason for persecution. The reason for persecution. Now today, quite honestly, all you have to do to be opposed or to be criticized is to take a position on anything. Right? Anything. It can be tax policy, it can be educational strategy, it can be immigration, it could just be adding an additional lamppost in your neighborhood. If you make the statement, someone is going to oppose you, someone is going to criticize you for some reason. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that the persecution of Christians happens for a particular reason. Now to be clear, it's not because Christians are to be obnoxious. It's not because Christians are to be harsh and loveless. Though admittedly, some who claim Jesus Christ 
act and speak in obnoxious ways and are harsh and are loveless. Now, friends, I say this. Because we all need to hear it. Such a person may have been in the mirror this morning. But be clear, friends, these things are out of step with the Lord Jesus Christ. Being opposed because you are harsh and loveless is not Christian persecution, even if what you said was true. If someone is opposing you because you are harsh and loveless. It is not the same as what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus essentially is saying is that true Christian persecution happens because we are truly Christians, which he lays out in a couple of phrases here. We're persecuted for righteousness' sake in verse 10. That's what he says. Blessed are you, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The very righteousness we hunger for, we crave this right living, this unwavering commitment to holiness, to pleasing God, leads to persecution. Why? Why would that draw persecution? Because the world loves darkness rather than the light. Have you ever heard of a condition called polymorphic light eruption? I had not before this week. Polymorphic light eruption is a condition in which when you're in the sun or you're exposed to UV rays, you, you have an adverse reaction to it. You can get itching, burning rashes. And the truth is, is that the world has an adverse reaction to those who walk in the light. A Christian committed to holiness can actually be used by God to bring conviction in an unbeliever's life, to point out that something's wrong. I don't, I don't seek to do right. Like, I don't try to do right like that. I, I don't if I had the opportunity to serve myself, I would have done it. I would have gone for it. And God can use that to bring conviction that something needs to change, something is wrong. And apart from the Spirit's work, people do not respond well to conviction, to that sense of what's happening right now is telling me that something is wrong in me. I don't know if you're like this, but you know, the holidays are coming up and you'll be with probably extended family and maybe most of your family are believers and maybe most of your family are not. But if you're in a situation where most of your family's not, and I've been in those gatherings where Susan and I and you know, are, are, are the only really adults who are believers in, in, this, in this get up. Well... It's interesting how the things, the language of people changes when I'm just around. And then when um, alcohol loosens the tongue and that language comes out, they'll apologize to me as if they've sinned against me. 
I'm sorry for that. Now, I know that they're trying to be respectful, but it's interesting that just me being there gives them a sense of something is wrong with saying that in the presence of this person. And what I, I've said this a few times is that, look, I am the least of your concerns when it comes to conviction. I'm not the one that anyone, I, nobody should be concerned about what I think about what they do wrong. What does God think about it? That's the question. But people don't like that. It's an adverse reaction. So you see, teenagers, when you're, when you're in your school and your friends say yes to some, they're, they're participating in some bit of worldliness that they think is not a big deal, but you say no to it because you know it's a big deal before God... Don't expect to be applauded for that. Don't expect a pat on the back. Be expected. Expect to be laughed at. Expect to be left out. Expect to be mocked. For righteousness sake. And then in verse 11, Jesus says, On my account. Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, ultimately, it's our association with Jesus that puts a bullseye on our backs. You see that our, our culture looks for the good in every religion in the world save one, Christianity. The only time Christianity is applauded, I will tell you, the only time Christianity is applauded by the world is when it compromises. When the heart of Christianity is cut out and it no longer looks like Christianity. When we only focus on something like love for neighbor or being a good Samaritan. And we're not going to talk. We're going to leave out the bits about the sin and the judgment and, and the need for a Savior. And Jesus being the only way to God. You see, only a twisted form of Christianity is acceptable to the world. But once you twist Christianity, you know what it's not? Christianity. It's not Christianity anymore. It's our association with Jesus. It's our commitment to Jesus. It's our allegiance to Jesus that puts the bullseye on. Jesus says if we're truly and fully committed to him, we will be persecuted. Listen to his words in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. I mean, the net-net is that Christians will be persecuted because they're Christians, because they're committed to righteous living, because they're fully devoted to Jesus. Now, think about any opposition that you have faced for things that you've said, for things that you've done, for things that you've posted in the name of Jesus. I wonder if the opposition is truly because you are Christian or if it is for a wrong reason? That's an important question. And one you shouldn't dismiss. Ask the Lord to give you insight. And even more than that, ask your wife 
Ask your husband. Ask your good friend. Do I tend to be harsh and obnoxious when I'm trying to take a firm stand for truth? Because the reason we are persecuted for Christ is when it's for Christ, for righteousness' sake, on His account. So the reality of persecution, the reason for persecution, then finally the response to persecution. How is it that we're to respond to this when it happens? How are we to respond to such opposition? I mean, there are lots of wrong ways, actually, when you think about it. Uh, There is uh, resentment. There's retaliation. One could descend into discouragement and depression when they are opposed. And all those things seem quite natural, don't they? Because nobody likes being opposed. Don't you like it when you get along with your friends? (laughs) Nobody, Nobody likes being opposed by their friends at all. It's, it's just it's natural when that happens to bow up and be defensive or to bow down and get depressed. But Jesus doesn't call us to respond in a natural way. He calls us to respond in a Christian way, which is not natural. He says we actually should rejoice by remembering. Rejoice by remembering. First, we rejoice and be glad. Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. These, just so you know, these aren't possible responses. This isn't like, you know, taking the SAT. Well, you can rejoice, or you can be glad, or you can sulk, or none of the above. No, 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 no. These aren't possibilities. These are commands. Rejoice. Be glad. And not just kind of glad, all right? Not just like smirk glad. This is exceeding happiness glad. This is the happiness of a couple discovering they're pregnant after years of not being able to have a baby happy. This is the the happiness of the college graduate landing the job in the place they want to work kind of happy. This this is the happiness of of the patient who's been diagnosed with cancer, has an additional scan and learns it's not there. That kind of it, it's the happiness of a young woman when the young man gets down on his knee and opens the ring box, kind of happy. I mean, we could make a long list of things we were happy about, right? If I just asked you, what are what, what, what makes you the most happy in life? You could just write all kinds of things down. But you know, would never make any of your lists being insulted. Being mocked, being lied about, losing friends, being shut out of your family, because it's not natural. And yet this is what Jesus is commanding us to do. So obviously we need the Spirit's help with this. But what does the Spirit, how does the Spirit actually help us to rejoice? He helps us by helping us remember. What are we to remember? Two things. Remember your reward. Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. And up in verse 10, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, those who are persecuted. You see, the world's reward for righteousness and allegiance to Jesus 
is persecution. God's reward is eternal life, unspeakable joy, undisturbable peace, glory, heaven. Paul said in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When God said He is going to reward you, it is something beyond what you can actually imagine as far as its greatness. You can imagine as great as you'd like, and it is infinitely greater. This is not just a reward in heaven. This is great, weighty, eternal. It's not like when you open a gift at Christmas and you put on the smile and you say, thank you. This is like what I did when I was a teenager. I would open up the same shirt and jeans and Old Spice gift set from my grandmother every year, and I would put on the smile and I would thank her. Thank you, Grandma. But... I struggled to actually be thankful for the shirt I would never wear and the jeans that usually didn't fit and the old... I don't even know who knew who used Old Spice. Did you have to be old to actually use it? It seems like it. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like opening up a Christmas present and you think, well, this could have been better. The reward of God is beyond our capacity to understand how great it actually is. And it is not here. It is in heaven. So remember that when your friends shut you out. Remember that when lies are told about you. Remember that when you're passed over for the promotion. Remember that when you're laughed at and you're mocked. Remember that in your prison cell and death hangs over your head. Your reward in heaven is great. But also... Remember your predecessors. Look at what he says right after that. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember Elijah, who stood for the glory of God in the face of the prophets of Baal and won a great victory and then was hunted by Jezebel for it. Remember Hanani, who confronted King Asa in his unbelief, who had trusted in Syria rather than trusted in the Lord. And Hanani comes and confronts him with it, and he's thrown in stocks for it. Remember Jeremiah, who preached repentance and righteousness to the nation of of Judah and, and was thrown in prison and beaten for it. Remember John the Baptist who confronted King Herod because he was in an adulterous marriage. And remember where John's head ended up. It ended up on a platter as a gift because the queen who was the center of the adultery hated him for it. Remember You don't stand alone. You stand in a long line of men and women who have been faithful to God no matter what. According to the book of Hebrews, they were tortured, suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about destitute, afflicted, 
mistreated. They are men and women of whom the world is not worthy. Remember them when it happens to you. Remember that in God's kindness, you are now one of them. And the commendation they have received for their faith is the commendation you will receive if you will stay faithful. But there's one more to remember, you see. He wasn't simply a prophet, but also a priest and a king. We remember Jesus Christ. Right after that section in Hebrews, the author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, Jesus endured slander. Jesus was lied about. Jesus was persecuted. And the result of his persecution, his death at the hands of his enemies was the accomplishment of God's purpose of salvation. Through the persecution, a greater glory came, a glory that means our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. And friend, if you are not reconciled to God, if you're just kind of hanging out and you like listening to things about the Bible and you're just curious, don't be curious, but let that curiosity take you to Jesus and not fill your head with trivia. Go to Jesus Christ. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He laid down his life so that if you will trust in him, you will be saved. You will be forgiven of your sin. And there will be a reward in heaven that is great for you. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. Rejoice. So you rejoice and be glad. Dear Christian, you will be persecuted. You must, you must, if you're truly following in Jesus' footsteps. You'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You'll be persecuted because you belong to Jesus. And when you're persecuted, remember that you're blessed. Your reward is great in heaven. And remember that you're neither the first nor the last who will walk this road of suffering. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on the narrow way. One with Christ, I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for the battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. So come rejoice now, O oh my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let me leave you with this. Opposition in this life is not optional. 
Those who follow Christ will be opposed by the world. Those who reject Christ will be opposed by God. So it seems to me that one can either endure the punishment of the world now and enjoy the reward of God forever, or enjoy the rewards that the world can give you now and endure the punishment of God forever. There is no third option. The question is, in your heart, which reward has more appeal? What the world can give you or what the Lord gives you? Which punishment is the one you most want to avoid? The one inflicted by the world or the one inflicted by God? Opposition is not optional, friends. But blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, we are thankful that we follow a Savior who has walked through all He said we would walk through. The opposition, the persecution, the slander, the lies, the hatred. Lord, we pray that we would not try to convince ourselves of the lie that persecution is optional in this life. That being opposed by the world is somehow only for certain people. But God, help us to wrestle with the reality of it. We pray, Lord, when we are opposed, it is not because of our wrongdoing, of our unloving attitudes, our harshness. Your servant Peter asked, what benefit is it if we do evil and suffer punishment? It's none. There is no benefit, Lord. But we pray that we will pursue righteousness with unrelenting zeal and that we will be committed to Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. And we pray that when persecution comes, that you would help us to be like those, your apostles who walked away from their persecution rejoicing for it because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That will take grace, Lord. We pray that persecution will not make our faith shrivel, but will remind us of our reward in heaven and remind us that we are not alone, that all your people walk this same road. And we ask it all for the sake of our persecuted, crucified, and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and in his name. Amen.